Terry Balper in the Team of the Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance of the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this particular edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week we discuss some contractual esoterica regarding the Mets' decision to waive shortstop Ruben Tejada. Why did the precise day matter? What would have happened if they had rostered him for an additional day? How much money would they have lost? How much would Ruben Tejada have gained? Etc., etc. Thrilling stuff. We also examine, uh, in some depth, the New York Mets' considerable infield depth, and conversely, the lack of infield depth, or at least lack of shortstop depth, possessed by that club, by whom Ruben Tejada is now employed, the St. Louis Cardinals. Is it systemic? Probably not, submits Dave Cameron. In the conversation that follows, Dave Cameron also mumbles something about the impossibility of NCAA baseball ever approaching anything like the heights, the high heights of the NCAA basketball tournament. Also, a programming note, please advise listener that for a 30-second portion of this episode, Dave Cameron does in fact sound less like himself and more like a gramophone that has been placed at the bottom of the sea. The White Sox paid him four and a half million dollars to avoid arbitration, uh, and then got spring training and went, wait a minute, the NBC was terrible. Just something to note. We move on to that conversation very shortly, but first a sponsor's message, and not merely a sponsor's message, but a new sponsor's message. Have you, listener, ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it complicated, and then they try to sneak in huge fees at checkout. That's why you need to try SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the sponsor this week. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell concert tickets and sports tickets. Did you ever have an interest in going to a, a baseball game, for example? But then finding that it's been sold out, you have to buy tickets from law-breaking merchants? It's basically how I attended every Red Sox game after the age of 14. That's not the case anymore. SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. Here's what it does. SeatGeek pulls all the tickets available on other sites into one place. So you save time. You never miss a deal. And uh, if you want, you can even set alerts for upcoming games. And SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on the values you can immediately find under price seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detail maps to see the view from your seat, a feature which allows you not only to make a smarter decision as a consumer, but which reminds you that the future is right now. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. Unlike StubHub, for example, menacing, conniving StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. Well, now here is an offer. Here is an offer to listeners of Fangraphs Audio. You can receive a $20 rebate off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Here's what you do. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app. Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. You entered the promo code Fangraphs, F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. What you need to do, download that free SeatGeek app, enter promo code Fangraphs, and begin enjoying live events. Okay, that is the sponsor's message, the new sponsor's message. That is complete. What we're moving on to now is a conversation, a conversation with Dave Cameron. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? That same Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. with my own housing search. Are you familiar with the difference between the two? I'm not. Yeah, well, 
mostly when you buy property, you you receive a quit claim or you receive a warranty deed, <clears throat> which says that the person who's selling you the house guarantees that uh, the title is clean, essentially, or if it's not clean, that they uh, adopt any sort of liability for liens or claims on the property. Isn't that what title insurance is for? Yeah, title insurance is part of it, I guess. But if you have a quick claim deed, what that means is it's just it's the person who's selling you the house is merely stating whatever interest I, the current owner, have in the property, I give it to you. And they don't actually tell you how much interest that is? Well, no, they don't specify. So they could be telling you like a timeshare and presenting it as like a, a home that you could purchase? Well, in theory, you could actually sell your neighbor's house with a quick claim deed. Yeah, that seems like a good plan. You say, whatever interest I have in my neighbor's house, I well, sell to you. Happen, happens to be none. <laughs> it happens to be none, but you don't have to specify. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I could sell your house with a quick claim deed. Okay. Well, you, you, good luck with that. And I think quick claim deeds are – it's uh, faster to fill them out anyway. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand title insurance yet. Though. That's the next thing. <laughs> well, title insurance is basically because uh, I went through this when I bought the house we live in now. Uh, yeah. The previous owners had not paid taxes for ten years, okay. so they had been foreclosed on. Uh, but the uh, IRS apparently had first right to buy the house because they owed the IRS like one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and so we had to. Uh, go through a lot of hoops to get title insurance because the insurance companies wanted to make sure that the IRS wasn't going to come calling for the house. And I assume they did, yeah. And you probably, I don't know what your financing options were, but I assume that if you did indeed have um, lenders, that they would probably yeah. be, not want your house taken away from you either. They were not happy about the prospect of the IRS just coming and being like, this is our house now, and it, it delayed our closing for a couple months, and we ended up living with my sister-in-law, which was great. Oh, yeah. See, I don't want to live with that. Yeah, I actually like. I, mean, I like my sister and her husband, but I don't. They don't want us living with them. Yeah, I I think uh, getting title insurance on any home you purchase is a good idea. Recommended. Yeah. Wait, is it not necessary usually? Oh, it, it's like uh, I think one of those things that you're allowed to waive, but if you try to do it, everyone involved is going to be like, "What's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? Now yeah. we don't want to work with you." Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here, here's a I, let's uh you know what let's get into more. Financial minutia. Oh, that's the best kind of podcast. Yeah, but this might not be. This might be easier for you to explain. Uh, you wrote last week. I was, I was off for what most of the second half of last week. Um, and but you wrote a piece at one point in which you uh, you hailed you hailed Ruben Tejada as an inevitable cardinal. I did. And then guess what happened, Dave? Cameron? He signed with the cardinal. He signed with the cardinal. What? Yeah. What a brain on this, Dave Cameron. <laughs> it was not that hard to see this coming. Okay. <clears throat> um, you mentioned that the point at which the Mets waived him yeah. was somehow significant because if they had waited 24 hours, they would have owed him considerably more. Considerably more? Is that true? A little bit more. So basically arbitration contract. So, like, deals that are not long-term guaranteed deals or deals signed in free agency, but, like, the guys who sign, you know, their, their arbitration deals, even if they don't go to arbitration, the deals they sign to settle the arbitration uh, cases are not fully guaranteed. So, uh, up to 30 days before the start of the season, um, uh, actually, that's not true. There's a point, actually, uh, I think it's two, three weeks. Anyway, I don't remember exactly the exact number of <laughs> days. There's some point uh, during spring training where you can 
cut a player under an arbitration contract and only have to pay them 30 days termination fee, uh, which is essentially one-sixth of a player's contract. So in Ruben Hattada's case, he avoided arbitration at $3 million uh, with the Mets because uh, they cut him when they did. They owed him $500,000, roughly $500,000. And you, you call it a 30-day termination fee. What, what does that mean? 30 days before, 30 days after, 30 days? So they basically just have to pay him 30 days of his salary. So it, it's not 30 days before the season starts. It's that if you cut him at that point, instead of owing 180 days of, of the contract, you only owe 30. You owe one-sixth of the contract, essentially. Yeah. So they had to pay him $500,000 to go away. Right. So if I guess, had, yeah. If they had retained him, then after that point, it had gone up to 45 days of termination pay. So they basically saved themselves two weeks of Tata's salary. Ah, uh, okay. So it was, it, I guess for me, it was potential cause for confusion because that also happens to be very similar to the MLB minimum. So yes. I was wondering if somehow the MLB minimum has nothing to do with each other. Has nothing to do with it. Yeah. So, so like if Tata would have uh, avoided arbitration at $20 million, then they would have had to pay him, you know, $3 million or something to go away. So it's, it's, it's 30, it's equivalent to 30 days of pay based on your agreed upon rate. Um, but that deadline has already passed. That deadline passed. Now if a team wants to cut someone in that same position, it's 45 days of termination pay. Oh, so okay. six weeks uh, instead of three, you know, a month. And then if you are on the uh, opening day roster and you, you make the team as of the first day of the season, then your contract becomes fully guaranteed. So if you wait till day one, then you own the whole thing. Okay. Did this, did this something similar, did this issue come up maybe like two or three years ago with, I don't know, a player was on his way out. Maybe it wasn't Brett Myers, but I feel like it was someone like Brett Myers. Yeah, this actually happens pretty much every uh, Tug year. Hewlett. Was it Tug Hewlett? That could be. That's that's a person who <laughs> played baseball. Uh, yeah, no, I think like every year we'll see guys cut in spring training, especially towards the end of spring training, uh, where teams say, you know what, maybe I'm going to pay you two million dollars on the arbitration guarantee, but I think you aren't any better than this guy who I have in camp, who I can put on the roster for the league minimum, so I'm just going to save the $2 million or whatever it is. Uh, rather than guaranteeing your whole contract, I'll just cut you now and pay the termination fee. So um, I think this happens pretty regularly. Not, I mean, not like, a, you know, 50 guys a year, but every year we see a case something like this. Right, and presumably the team that's uh, performing the, the cutting yeah. uh, has more information at, at that point than they do when the actual arbitration deal was reached. Is yeah, part, is actually, part of it. I, yeah. I, I was thinking of trying to think of who it was last. It was Diane Vizieto, I think, was in this case last year, where the White Sox paid him four and a half million dollars to win arbitration, uh, and then got spring training. And went, Wait a minute, Diane Vizieto was terrible. And yeah, and uh, then he ended up like basically floating around the minors. I think it was the Blue Jays on a minor league deal or something. Uh, but that's like a case where the White Sox said we would rather pay seven hundred thousand dollars to have you not on our team than four and a half million dollars to have you on our team. Right. Uh, okay. I would have announced that I uh, something that the listeners might already know is that you sound you sound slightly stranger now. You sound like a little bit like a like a um, like a robot that's gone underwater. Hmm. Well, I'm talking with my normal voice in the same room I always talk. So. Oh, okay, no, it's getting better. But I'm also I'm in France, though. Might might be my fault. Well, anyway, to just usually your fault. Just as in brief, brief, we just missed some words about Diane Viciedo. Okay, well, he was an example of a guy who the the got cut last year. It was uh, it took me a minute to think about someone who uh, fit this example. But last year, the White Sox had Viciedo four and a half million, I think, uh, after their arbitration settlement, and they cut mm-hmm. him. Uh, in order to only pay him the termination fee of like $700,000. Where's the, where's the Invisio today? I think not in baseball, or at least not in Major League Baseball. That escalated quickly, didn't it? He was bad. Well, no. Well, no, this he is was a, bad. A source of permanent... Uh, yeah, he's no, he's, he's really bad. Really good but, compared to a lot of people. No. 
Oh, he'd be like he'd be like the best player on, uh, you know, the University of Florida or something. Okay, well, I don't watch the University of Florida, so right, but people do anyway. He was the uh, he's the baseball equivalent of Northern Iowa's ball handling at the end of the game last night. Oh yeah, I didn't. Uh, that's a reference that I I only understand because I went back and but yes, that was an amazing game. Ten points in thirty seconds, is that right? Twelve points in forty five seconds. Yeah. Oh my! All right. Yeah. Well, uh, so okay. So what made what made Ruben Tejada expendable for the New York Mets? Well, they they signed as Drupal Cabrera to displace Wilmer Flores as their starting shortstop. So Tejada became like their third string shortstop. Um, I think you could actually argue that the that he wasn't really expendable with the Mets because David Wright is not really healthy. And his Drupal Cabrera is now not really healthy. So it, Wilmer Flores might have to play both shortstop and third base on opening day. Um, so I think you could actually argue that the, the Mets could have used Tejada. But I think when I wrote the post last week, I was arguing – not necessarily arguing. I put forth some speculation that the Mets basically were doing Tejada a favor. Is that if they kept him around, uh, because of a quirk in the service time – uh, disagreement that the two got into. He's actually a free agent after this coming season. Um, so this is now his walk year. The Mets were probably only in line to give him something like 150 or 250 plate appearances unless they had a, a series of significant injuries. But most likely he was going to get a couple hundred at-bats for the Mets this year. And then he was going to be a free agent, and he was not going to have you know, much of a track record in order to be a free agent. And they said, uh, at least in my my hypothesizing, Look, we think that Tata is not dramatically better than the other internal options we have, but the Cardinals are willing to give this kid a chance to play every day because they have an injury. Uh, let's just, you know, save a little bit of money, not take a dramatic decline in performance from our third string utility infielder and give Tata a chance to kind of have a good year before his walk year. And so the Cardinals didn't want to trade for Tata at $3 million, uh, which is why the Mets cut him. I think knowing that the Cardinals were going to sign him for less money, which is what the Cardinals ended up giving him a million five. So by cutting him, they essentially gave the Cardinals a chance to give Tejada an everyday job in the last year before his free agency. They, they kind of did him a favor. Okay, here's a, here's a question with regard to the Mets too. Do you think that the that they're um, scuttling away of um, Ruben Tejada has anything to do with the readiness or possible readiness? of, say, Gavin Cicchini or Dilson Herrera? So Herrera, I think, is probably the more significant of those two, um, and you could potentially argue that Herrera's as good or better than Tata now, uh, but they seem pretty set on having Herrera play in the minors every day, so Herrera's not going to be the guy who takes Tata's job uh, on the roster to start the season. That's going to be Cicchini, and I think they look at it and say, look, our third string shortstop's going to play once a week or, you know, mm-hmm. twice a week maybe. There's just not a huge difference between these two. So let's save two and a half million bucks. Right, okay. Right. And they do have they do have some players coming. Where is it? Where, and then there's finally there's Ahmed Rosario. Where, where, what's his highest level? I think he played uh, a, he high was an A ball. He was an A ball, yeah. Yeah. So he's a couple years away probably. Probably a couple years but, away. But, I mean, like in Tata, Tata was not in the Mets' long-term plans. He's a walk-year uh, no, you, guy. Do you mean Tejada? Do you mean Tejada? Yeah. Yeah, is that what I said? No, yeah, but he's on the Cardinals now. No, I know. I'm saying he was not in the Cardinals. Oh, he wasn't. <laughs> Obviously, they cut him. But he was a free agent at the end of the year. So Ahmed Rosario has nothing to do with Ruben Tata. They were thinking, how much is Tata going to help us in 2016 relative to these other options we have as third-string utility infielders, and should we just save $2.5 million and give this kid a chance to play every day in his walk year? 
Right. Uh, furthermore, where is Matt Reynolds right now? Matt Reynolds, of course, the player who was rostered during the playoffs for the Mets despite having to, uh, recorded zero major league plate appearances in his career. You think I know the exact geographic location of Matt Reynolds without what, a problem? Is he, still, is he still in the club, and what are his chances of playing for the year? Why don't you know the answer, Dave? Because uh, this is not a uh, Mets <laughs> uh, utility infielder podcast. Okay. All right. uh, yeah, I, I don't have any idea. Well, I'm really but dwelling on it. As far as I know, he didn't die, so he's probably still in the Mets. He's still in the Mets, all right. Probably. The, the Mets seem – so last year – by our calculations, Wilmer Flores was worth about two wins and 500 plate appearances. <clears throat> yeah, because our defensive metrics think he's okay, and and a lot of people think that those are not true. Okay, right. Well, so fine. The year before that, he was worth about one and a half wins in yeah. roughly a half season's worth of plate appearances. So yeah. for the course of his career, you know, you could make it – I mean, you know, he's prorated. He's been worth like two and a half wins per 600 plate appearances. If you think he's a decent defensive shortstop, yeah. If you think he's a decent, right, right, right. <clears throat> the, and so typically, if a team has, if they employ a young player who's already played well, which suggests that he's likely to play well in the future, um, they will go to some lengths to pro- to provide him with everyday at bats, or they will sort of invest in him, um, you know, by means of playing time or whatever for the future. But the, the, but New York seems to be rather determined to push Wilmer Flores further down uh, further down the depth charts. Well, I think they look at Wilmer Flores and be like, this guy's a bad defender, which mm-hmm. is the general consensus among people who watch him play because he looks terrible. Well, he's kind uh, of like, he's kind of a big guy. He's and he, stocky and uh, yeah. he doesn't look like a shortstop. And I think like there's some chance that he's getting the Johnny Peralta treatment here. Like I wouldn't say that with definitive, but like Johnny Peralta had a similar reputation at a similar point in his career as a bigger guy with like thick legs um, and wasn't seen as a shortstop. The Indians actually moved him to third base early in his career. And, um, you know, I think kind of uh, Flores is being treated similarly in some ways, Maybe perhaps because of his body type, or he might just really be a terrible defender. But I think the Mets' case is that he's a bad defensive shortstop, and he doesn't hit well enough to justify putting him on the field, you know, 500, 600 times a year, at least for 500, 600 plate appearances. If he's an okay hitter, was a terrible, short, terrible defender. The numbers say he's actually an okay defender and a decent hitter, and that makes him like a valuable enough player because he doesn't kill you either with the bat or the glove. But I think the Mets have a different perspective on his defense than UZR does. Yeah, well, he makes a lot of contact. I mean, sw- I guess he swings a bunch. Yeah. Um, but he makes a lot of contact, and he recorded like n- nearly average, uh, nearly average power last year in terms of like isolated power. Yeah, I mean, he's an okay hitter for a shortstop. He's not a great hitter for a third baseman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you think his defense profiles at third base instead of shortstop, then you'd look at him as like an under bat, decent glove guy. If you look at him as shortstop, then it's a decent bat, bad glove. Player. So he's kind of in between. Right, all right. Well, regardless, I think he is a player of interest given his age and given his achievements to date, uh, and also given the fact that his own team doesn't really seem to want to keep him around. <laughs> well, they want to keep him around. They just don't want to play him every day. Right. And, and if, I think, you know, they're trying to get back to the World Series. If you think that he's like maybe, like, I think it's reasonable to think that maybe he's more of a one win player than a two win player if you think his defense is worse than UZR thinks it is. Uh, uh, so then you say, okay. If he's a one-win player and we're trying to make the World Series, we shouldn't really be giving this guy a lot of playing time. Right. Well, I guess at that point he's. But I guess it's it's not very common though. I feel like to see 23 or 24 year olds entering the season as a utility player. 
like usually it's uh, especially if 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 that player has had some sort of um you know has has some sort of pedigree as a prospect because you're looking for as you are for, for Dilson Herrera for example you're looking for everyday at bats yeah i mean i think it's becoming more common the cubs are doing this with Javier Baez this winter right yeah Javier Baez is he's a, he's a very strange player yeah i would say he's probably got more upside than Wilmer Flores does and probably but yeah. also has a lower floor too yep He's a more, but he's the kind of guy you would think more at bats would be even more helpful for because he needs to learn how to, you know, not swing and miss so much. Yeah. But the Cubs are going to use him as a utility guy because they're trying to win, and he's their best backup shortstop. Okay, so Ruben Tejada, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily good enough uh, even to remain employed by the New York Mets, but now he moves to a team that, um, I mean, the, the Mets are obviously, um, they're expected to be quite good. Or you know, or among the better teams in the National League, but so are the St. Louis Cardinals, and now they will be presumably handing the job to Ruben Tejada until such a time as Johnny Peralta returns from his hand injury. Yeah, and I think uh, you know this is a case where the Cardinals didn't necessarily have uh, a guy who was as good as Tejada, or they didn't have a couple of guys as good as Tejada. You could maybe argue that Jed Jerko was in the same range, but now they have options, right? Like, they still wanted to be able to platoon Colton Wong occasionally, and Jerko was in line for that spot, but if he's your starting shortstop, you can't really platoon Wong and Jerko at second base, so having some uh, extra bodies around gives them a little bit more flexibility in terms of what they do with their lineup, um, and I do think, like, Tata's good enough to play on a major league team, certainly. it's The the, the Mets just had a couple of options who were slightly better, um, but, you know, Tata's not like a guy who doesn't belong in the big leagues, uh, and considering the Cardinals' hole, it made plenty of sense for them to be the team to sign him. What do we think? Uh, all right, so uh, we we talked. I think the la- last time we spoke, we discussed the Houston Astros, who seem to have. Um, I mean, it could it could just be a function of randomness, but it's also possible that they have what you might refer to as an organizational blind spot, whereas first base and DH are concerned, right? Is that possible? I wouldn't call it a blind spot. Or they prioritize it less than they have other positions in recent years. Sure, yeah. Because they have Evan Gaddis and Jonathan Singleton. Singleton, of course, was a, you know, is a well thought of, or has been a well thought of prospect. Evan Gaddis certainly has, uh, you know, good raw power. Mm. But, but every, every other position is manned by someone who's expected to produce an average number of wins or more. And and that's not the case with first base and DH. Yeah, I think they've had more flawed players at those positions, uh, probably because they don't want to pay for the market rate for first baseman and DH, which was very high. Okay, so the St. Louis Cardinals, I suppose with the exception of Johnny Peralta, um, and even including him, uh, do not seem to have placed much emphasis on shortstop depth uh, right. in recent years. Do you, yeah. do you regard this, again, do you regard this as as a symptom of an organizational philosophy or product of an organizational philosophy, or is it merely random? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, so they did spend $52 million on Johnny Peralta, which suggests that they – at least valued him as a shortstop. Hmm. But the fact that they didn't necessarily care to have like a reasonable alternative in place for when he was injured or, you know, uh, not playing was weird. I mean, the fact that they regularly were playing guys like Pete Cosma in the World Series is a little befuddling. So why the Cardinals have done that, I mean, you could say that perhaps they just expect that Peralta is going to be a, you know, durable everyday guy and play uh, you know, 150 games, so why spend money on a guy who's only going to play 15, 20 games a year, start 15, 20 games a year? Um, but when you're a team like the Cardinals and you're in a position to 
uh, maximize your your wins in every given season, I think a high floor is probably um, something to pursue, and, and having someone around to not be terrible if your starter goes down seems like a reasonable idea. Okay, what do we know about, because it's the last time we spoke about this, the, the shortstop position for the Cardinals, which might have been two weeks ago. I could be wrong about that. It would not be the only thing about which I am wrong constantly. <clears throat> uh, I had mentioned Dinana, of course, because uh, that is that is my hobby horse and my axe to grind. But I neglected to mention Aledmis Diaz. Aledmis, Aledmis, Aledmis. Aledmis, I think. No, it's Aledmis, according to the according uh, to the internet. I'm gonna call him Aledmis. Let's call him Aledmis. Okay. Regardless Sorry, of what we call... we're not gonna we're gonna mispronounce your name on purpose. Yeah, we will. We will take our dumb Anglo-Saxon mouths <laughs> and right. we will say your name wrong. I apologize. Carson, Carson Castulli yeah. is here. Well, that's speaking. that's also an Anglo-Saxon problem, isn't it? The problem is, uh, so what do we, what do we know about his pos- the possibility of him playing for a shortstop for the Cardinals and uh, why did he not seem as though to be the next most logical option for the Cardinals there? Well, they just opted him into the AAA after they signed Tata, so mm-hmm. he won't be playing for the Cardinals in the start of the season, at least. Um, I mean, I think they look at Diaz as a um, kind of in the Jerko Peralta-ish mode, if Flores probably in this mode too, as a bat first shortstop, not a great defender. Um, hopefully, he hits enough to not be uh, to, to provide value while not killing you defensively. But at this point, he has not shown that he's going to hit well enough in the high minors to justify everyday at bats on a contender. I mean, if the if the Cardinals were rebuilding, if they were the Phillies or the Braves or something, yeah, give this guy 500 at bats and see what he can do. But you know, the Cardinals kind of need a little bit more security than that, and Diaz uh, still has a chance to to be really bad defensively and not hit. And so I think they're willing to let him season himself a little bit in AAA and give them a little bit more evidence about he what he could be and. Um, you know, if Tejada flops in in April, maybe we see Diaz in May as like a an alternative uh, before Peralta returns. But more likely, Diaz spends the whole year in AAA. Okay, good information there, Dave Cameron. Thanks. <laughs> well, here's a question: uh, What's the deal? Well, what's the deal? That's not this is not a Jerry Seinfeld joke, I promise. The um, I, allow me to observe that the positional power rankings have begun today at Fangraphs.com. They did. Well, and, I guess yesterday because you're going to post this in the morning, right? Yes, I am, yeah. And that Jeff Sullivan produced the – I guess he addressed the first position uh, shortly following your introduction to the same thing. Yeah. Mm, t- um, I will tell you how I interact with these, and it has a lot more to do with my life as a reader than a, than a – or as a writer than a reader – Reader, a writer for, not a reader than, a reader of uh, Fangraphs. And that's that these things take so long to write. They do. They're uh, a labor of, uh, I guess not a labor of love. No. You don't love them. A no, labor no. of force. Yeah. We are yeah. compelled to write them. Otherwise, yeah. a threat, <laughs> threat of being fired. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry that they take so long. But at least we spread the wealth a little bit more this year. Like no one's yeah. doing more than two. I don't think so, no. So. Yeah. And who I forget who you to whom you assigned the relief pitchers. Uh, I think I gave that to Owen and Craig. Yeah, take that, guys. I want to say um, there. Are, I'm sure this happens for a, um, a number of people at their jobs, um, where where you're given a thankless task, but writing about the relief pitchers is a it's a it is a, uh, an expeditious way 
of realizing that life has no meaning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is really my goal for you is to, to crush your soul and make you uh, yeah, despair yeah. Well, and to be despondent. No, well, I appreciate not having to do it this year. But um, the thing is, like, you know, every team has – what, entering the, entering the season has, what, six or seven relief pitchers usually? Uh, but they start the year with seven generally. In the yeah. yeah. But they have, yeah. like, you know – 15 guys in the minors who you could swap out. Today. Who you could also swap out. And guess what? It, as you mentioned with, you know, the Mets and p- potentially deploying Ruben Tejada once a week and a third string shortstop not really, um, you know, having much influence over the ultimate outcome of a team, uh, you know, over the course of an entire season. Uh, the, 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 the 10th relief pitcher on your team, it doesn't really have a lot of influence either. Yeah, I'm mean, gonna think that's one of the things is like projecting reliever performance is mostly a uh, a lot of regression to the mean, right? Like we look at like no matter how good the guy was last year, we're with 60 innings or something, so we're probably pulling him pretty heavily back towards some kind of uh, central projection for a lot of relievers. So what you end up with in the relief pitcher rankings is a whole bunch of teams projected for something like two or three wins from their whole bullpen, and it starts to look pretty similar. So I would think if uh, if every position looked like the bullpen, we probably wouldn't do these. No, no, that's right, yeah. Uh, so get excited but, for that meaningless reliever series next week. Did you learn, uh, Dave Cameron, did you learn anything from reading the positional power rankings for the catcher? Or were you able to read it? Um, yeah, I mean, we started podcasting like two minutes after the post went up. So, uh, right. I mean, I think if you look at the graph that uh, accompanies the article, the one thing that stands out is just how much better Buster Posey is than everybody else. Uh, it's a pretty normal very, curve up till then, to be honest. This is a very clear star and scrubs kind of position. Uh, Posey is, uh, you know, one of the five or ten best players in baseball, and no one else has anyone nearly as good. Uh, I think it's it's pretty clear that there is a superstar catcher in Major League Baseball right now, and then I know a whole bunch of guys were okay. Right. C- catcher is a strange position, right? So I've been thinking about this with regard to the college level, and I know that that level doesn't interest you at all. But it, what it does reveal, so there, there are a number of offensively oriented catchers playing in college, but I think the way it's um, the position is utilized there, and this might be true of the low minors as well, is that you have players who um, you have you can have players there who who could very well end up at you know limited to first base, or maybe they could play third base where their mobility is not as much of a factor. But 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 there's this threshold that catchers have to cross. Um, you know, in terms of defensive adequacy. And, I, I, you know, to the naked eye, I don't know if it's always obvious. Uh, it depends on whose eye, probably. Yeah, right? Like, right. to the coaches and the guy, the pitchers who throw to them every day, I think it's obvious pretty quickly. Like, the players and coaches can see, uh, like a guy like Kyle Schwarber, like, pretty, pretty clearly, like, this guy has deficiencies that need work. Uh, the fan, maybe not as much. Mm-hmm. But, are they, but, um, but there's also, there's always the hope, right, that it, I mean, the, the the question with or the the situation with Kyle Schwarber was such that I think that there was one possible, um, you know, line or, or you know, strategy with him, which was to leave him in the minors, and with the idea that you would allow his his glove as a catcher to catch up with his bat a little bit. I mean, that, the, the Cubs don't seem to be interested at all. Certainly now in pursuing that. Yeah. Um, but that path. But I think that I mean you, that, that does happen occasionally, though. 
Yeah, I mean, that was one of the interesting questions when the Nationals drafted Bryce Harper, who was a catcher in high school. And it was uh, pretty clear that Bryce Harper was going to be an offensive monster, and he could get to the big leagues very quickly on his bat. But how long did you want it, that kind of the generational talent sitting in the minor leagues trying to work on framing and receiving and blocking balls in the dirt? Not very long. And the Nationals decided that it was not worth the uh, gain of potentially having, you know, Mike Piazza uh, in his prime uh, at some point down the line, if it cost them two or three or four years of, you know, having Harper as a monster outfielder. And so they made the decision that the added value of having that kind of hitter behind the plate wasn't worth the development time. And I think a lot of teams make that choice uh, when there's a significant gap between a guy's bat and his glove. Right. Now, listen, uh, obviously, when, uh, when it comes to evaluating catchers, there's the question of pitch framing. And our fielding projections, to, to the best of my knowledge, don't include anything like pitch framing in them. Correct. And so, if you were to if you were to guess, uh, what's the what what would be sort of the the range if we were to factor in pitch framing? What's the most or least a, a team? I mean, the least is zero, I guess. What's the most a, a team sort of uh, collection of catchers would move in one direction or the other? Uh, probably about a win, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a win and a half on like an extreme example. But I think one of the interesting things that the kind of um, rise of pitch framing as a generally accepted public, a uh, generally accepted trait in the public sphere and, and maybe even within teams themselves has been to raise the baseline. So, you know, we've seen Yadier Molina and Jonathan Lucroy, who were two of the pitch framing heroes a few years ago, have uh, seen their numbers crater uh, most recently. Uh, last year, I think both of them were rated as like basically average framers. It's more likely the, uh, the bar has been raised than it is that they just got demonstrably worse. Um, so I think we aren't going to have these extreme outliers like Jose Molina anymore. Um, and so, you know, even the best pitch framers, when you project out their future value, you have now have to do it against a raised baseline. Um, and so you're probably looking at like a win, a win and a half at the, at the extreme. And, and I think teams are not willing to run out Ryan Dubit type guys behind the plate anymore. So on the negative end, it might be more like half a win or a win. Right. Uh, uh, you're very close now, Dave Cameron, to having fulfilled your obligation to the program. I want to ask very you. Very exciting. Yeah, I know. I want to ask you about a final. Uh, final thing, of course, uh, we are now living in a, a period of, of March when the NCAA tournament is, uh, well, it's go- it's occurring, it's going it's, on. It's madness. It's madness, right? And of course, uh, what at first the first four day uh, game days have been played out. Yeah, they've gone from sixty four to thirty or to sixteen. Right, some uh, some excellent results. But I think we mentioned briefly the Texas A and M and Northern Iowa game. Or at least the last 45 seconds of it. Yeah. Right, and then also I think Northern Iowa's first game was also uh, pretty spectacular, yeah. right? They hit a half-court buzzer beater. Yeah. Right, which is a great, uh, good for them. Good job, guys. Uh, and of course, as a spectator, this is a, you know that's one of the sort of uh, endings you'd like to see. Yeah, unless you're a spectator from Texas. Right, but as a neutral supporter, and it seems like there there are a lot of neutral fans who watch the NCAA tournament with some interest. Yeah, absolutely. Right now. And I know that you address this sort of thing, but any, I mean, baseball itself, we discussed baseball, is a, is really little more than a collection of rules, right? And of course, as the game matures, you, uh, you develop more rules when certain problems arise or players and teams ad- adapt to the rules as they stand and learn how to exploit others, right? Um, sure. This is a very depressing way to describe a game. 
No, 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 but no, but I think it's I think it's a nice way to describe it because you start with I mean the, the original rules of baseball where you know where we do play by them would be stated where a player the batter can ask for the pitch where he wants it and there's an underhand delivery and the pitcher throws from a box there would be a lot wrong with the game and so the rules have been refined over the years. Okay. So it creates a more elegant game. Sure. Okay. And then, you know, beyond the rules of the game itself, there's also the sort of rule, the tournament rules, right? So the way that that is constructed in baseball right now is you have uh, two leagues, America and National. The division winners all make it to a playoffs, and then there's uh, there are two other teams qualify. They have they play a playing game, and that has produced some interesting results as well. Yes. Okay. What would I'm you... just agreeing with your statement? So far, yes. I I would. Yeah. I'm yeah. creating a foundation, some context okay. for the question I'm about to ask. Would you be um, would you be inclined to watch a tournament? It's probably less likely to happen at the major league level, but would you be more inclined? Because you've already you're already on record as saying you do not care for college baseball much at all. Right. If it were constructed, however, similarly, it's I guess I suppose it is constructed similarly, but if it, if it were constructed precisely um, in the same way that the that the NCAA basketball tournament is constructed, do you think you would be more inclined to watch it? No, because I think in especially in college basketball, there's a huge variance in talent between teams, right? So like the best teams are dramatically better than the the 16 seeds, right? Or the lower two seeded teams make the tournament. So while a one game, uh, you know, single elimination tournament obviously, uh, adds a lot of luck and kind of, uh, excitement into the, you still have the better team winning more often because of the drastic kind of parody, uh, lack of parity and talent in baseball. It is much more difficult because of, you know, a hitter only bats, uh, one ninth of the time and your pitcher can't pitch every day. It is much more difficult to have talent differences play out, uh, in a single game. Right. So if you add in the randomness of kind of a single elimination tournament in a sport where the difference between teams is not that large, I mean, at that point, what are you watching? You're just watching luck. I mean, there's there's very uh, little to be gained from watching two fairly evenly matched teams play one game. Hmm. Not great TV is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think you would just say, like, I don't know what the point of this is. At least in, in basketball, we're saying, okay, like, you know, North Carolina has earned the chance to play uh, some, you know, team that has almost a 0% chance of beating them in the first round, and then, you know, like slightly more challenging teams as they go along. So we get like a series of games where they climb a ladder of degree of difficulty, and maybe by the third or fourth game they're facing a team that's almost on equal footage, and then we get, you know, a couple of the best teams in, in basketball playing each other, and that's something we want to watch. But if you just have a whole tournament where it's 64 teams that are basically equal uh, competing in a randomness off, I don't know where the excitement of that is. Then I, I think you're painting... You're painting with a broad brush, Dave Cameron. They're not. They're not. It's not like they're precisely equal. No, but the differences are much smaller in baseball than they are in other sports. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's true of the major leagues as well, isn't it? Uh, it? I think it's just the 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 structure of the sport. It is almost impossible for one superstar to dominate in baseball the way it is in other sports. Yeah. Although I guess I suppose if you do have an elite starting pitcher, that could influence the outcome more. Right, but if you have a tournament, that elite starting pitcher can't pitch in every game. No, he can't pitch in every game. Yeah. What if you have two starting pitchers who are elite? I mean, it depends on the structure of the tournament, right? But that would certainly help. Yeah. Well, that would be my that would be my goal. If I were recruiting and coaching, 
Okay. Well, if you ever get handed a college program, <laughs> I expect you to start lobbying for a March Madness-style tournament. All right. Yeah. Well, please do. Well, like Because the College World Series happens, what, June? Right? Sure. So, so if you need like an alliteration, like March Madness, what would the June version be? Like June... Hmm. Junipering? Uh, 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 well, I hate the word jubilee, so it wouldn't be that. But okay. June, jub- you know, something along those lines, maybe. June, yeah, there's no like. Uh, J is a uh, tough word. J, I heard yeah, a lot J, of J, J words. There's not a, not a lot of words out there. Yeah. With J. yeah. All right. Um, we've really descended into uh, into a place that's you know we shouldn't have. Okay. Let's wow. stop. Let's stop it. Let's stop yeah. it. Dave, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. You fulfilled your obligation. Right. Um, let's uh, let's see. I, did I say thank you yet? You did. All right. Let me say. Let's let me let's end it then. That has been Dave Cameron, who's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, and Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.